Let's bow our heads for prayer before we begin today. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can come together to ASI this weekend to reflect on the amazing things that you're doing, to reflect on the mission of this church, the gospel commission that you've given us in your word, and to encourage one another in the faith. We pray that you would bless us in our session here today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Today's presentation focuses on an individual who in the historical narrative of the Bible is mentioned more frequently than any other individual in scripture. This particular individual is known to us from the earliest books of the Bible, clear down to the last chapter of Revelation. We may think to ourselves, who is this person? Is it Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith, the founder, one of the founding fathers of the great three monotheistic religions in the world today? It's not Abraham. Is it Moses who led the people of Israel out of captivity and brought them to the brink of the promised land? It is not Moses. Is it Joshua who led the people into the promised land and conquered that land for Israel? It is not Joshua. Even Jesus is not mentioned as frequently in the Bible by the name Jesus. He's mentioned, of course, by other names as well than this individual. This individual was a person who was a poet. He uh, put together most of the songs and liturgy that is still used today in synagogues and churches around the world. He is a person that was a great statesman. He was a hero of the Old Testament. And he is mentioned over 1,100 times in Scripture. He is known to us as David. David was an incredible, incredible person of history. Not only was he a poet, not only was he a statesman, not only was he a great thinker and philosopher, having composed much of the book of the Psalms, not only was he a great king and leader for his people, David was also the person that God said, he's a man after my own heart. He was also a simple person who came from simple origins, a shepherd boy who was anointed to be king of Israel. But David is more than all of these things. David is more than simply someone who is mentioned more often than any other person in the Bible. Why is David so important to history? He is more than simply the founder of a capital, and he holds the unique position of anyone in the world to this point in history that founded a capital at Jerusalem, which still serves as a capital today 3,000 years later. Think about it for a moment. I was there in 1996 as Jerusalem celebrated the 3,000 year anniversary of the city. You have not seen fireworks like that on the 4th of July anywhere else in the United States. It was amazing. And sure enough, on the walls, I don't know who they hired to do this spectacular program, but on the walls of the Israel Museum with laser lights, was the famous battle of David and Goliath. But David is known for something more important than that. He is also known as the progenitor of the Messiah. He is known as the one through whose line, through the line of Jesse, his father, 
the Messiah would one day come. He records as much in several of the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms. He also tells us later on um, in in other writings that, that, that the Messiah is to come. Matthew, of course, and Luke mention David specifically by name in the genealogies of Jesus. And Matthew goes so far as to indicate David in the narrative of when the angel comes to Joseph. He says, Joseph, the angel says, Joseph, the son of David, when he announces to him that he is soon to become the father, the adoptive father of the Messiah. And so, even in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself refers to himself as the root of David. David, such a crucial person in history, And so it may come as a surprise to some of us that David, in today's culture and in today's world, David's historicity as a person is under more attack than perhaps any other person in history. Today, in the secular world, in the world of biblical scholarship even, David is maligned. He is um, doubted as to have have even existed. David is... uh, Of course, in earlier critical scholarship, David's story, the story of David and Goliath, which we all know very well, was often thought to be somewhat of an exaggeration. You know, Goliath being that tall, David actually having beaten him with a simple stone. These stories seem to be exaggerated. But today, it is not only the stories that seem to be exaggerated, it is the entire history of David and the United Monarchy itself that is under increasing skepticism in the postmodern world in which we live. In 1993, I'm sorry, 1992, um, this story was uh, in the U.S. News and World Report in 2001, the fight for history, and in that fight, of course, the story of David uh, comes up. In 1992, a book was published, In Search of Ancient Israel, where the writer, a biblical scholar at the University of Sheffield in England, writes the following, the Israel of the biblical literature is at least for the most part not an historical entity at all. The biblical empire of David and Solomon has not the faintest echo in the archaeological record. And then he adds the two little words, as yet. Just to cover himself. Because you see what Davies and many others are doing, they're simply arguing on the basis of silence. We haven't found David or the mention of David in the archaeological record yet. Therefore, he must not have existed as an historical figure. And other scholars have gone down similar routes with other individuals and other entire peoples in history. We can remember, of course, in the 1700s, there was great skepticism over the Hittites, who are mentioned 28 times in the Bible. Today, we know they had a vast empire all over uh, Turkey and that they were the major rivals to the Egyptians further to the south. So arguments of silence are dangerous in any discipline. In archaeology, it's extremely dangerous to make such an assertion that something doesn't exist. You never know what might be found the next year or the next 10 years in that particular field or in that particular aspect. And that's exactly what happened the year after Davies published this book. In 1993, one year later, at the site of Tel Dan in northern Israel, And this, by the way, is the high place that was found at Dan. You remember Jeroboam I, after the divided monarchy, the united monarchy was split into the divided monarchy, he established a center at Dan and at Bethel. He had golden calves made, 
And the Bible says he told the Israelites for fear that they would go back down to Jerusalem and worship there and he would lose his control over them. He told them, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is Dan. And sure enough, the Hebrew Union College excavations there in the 1980s and 90s uncovered the high place which undoubtedly Jeroboam had built. That is a reconstruction of the four-horned altar that once stood there. How do we know it stood there? Because we found one of the horns of that particular altar. And uh, that's a reconstruction of it. I'm standing here in front of the high place where undoubtedly the golden calf probably stood originally. And you're looking off into the north. This is the northernmost city in Israel uh, historically. Remember, the borders were always described in the Bible as from Dan to Beersheba. So this is the northernmost city, and you're looking into the hills of Lebanon. And if you were looking a little bit further to the east, you'd be looking into the Golan Heights, which of course used to belong to Syria and is still under dispute today. So here we're standing, but it wasn't here in this location at the site that the discovery was made. It was at another location outside the city gate. Here you see the gate at Tel Dan. Outside the city gate, a volunteer, a college student, was working on an ancient wall and happened to cause one of the rocks in the wall to tumble out. And as the rock tumbled out, that student noticed on the bottom there an inscription on that rock. It had been reused as a building stone in the wall, but originally was no building stone at all. It was part of a huge stela that commemorated an event in history that is also recorded in the Bible. Here it is. The, what the student found was the part there on this side, and the following year, in 2004, these two fragments were found not very far away. And what does it say? It records a campaign by the king of Aram against Israel and Judah. It dates to about 150 years after the time of David. But what does it say? It says that the campaign took place against the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the house of David, which is the southern kingdom, which is exactly the way the Bible describes that kingdom. It refers to it as the house of David again and again. In Hebrew, Beit David. Now, do you think Davies and others accepted this uh, inscription? They began to make all kinds of excuses. They said, well, first of all, the inscription, Hebrew doesn't have vowels in ancient Hebrew. And uh, so how do you know it was an A and an I? They didn't have A's and I's back then. But anyway, how did you know there was an A and I in there? Could it be in an O or a U? Maybe it was the house of Dowd. Just add a T at the end there. House of Doubt, right? House of Dowd. No, that's what they said. The house of Dowd. Now, there's no house of Dowd that exists that we know of anywhere. We have Bet Shemesh, the house of the sun. We have Bet Lachem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. But we don't have a Bet Dowd. But it had to be Bet Dowd because it couldn't be Bet David. So, Bet Dowd. The scholarly establishment didn't accept that interpretation at all. And when that wasn't accepted, they said, well, maybe it was planted there by the archaeologists. It was a forgery that was planted there. Now, that borders on libel and uh, all kinds of other things. But anyway, that's what was printed in Biblical Archaeology Review in the early 1990s after this discovery was made. But here we have, for the first time, an extra-biblical mention of David, who is remembered as the founder of a dynasty 150 years later, just as the Bible describes. So that's exciting stuff. 
That is very exciting stuff. But you know, Davies wasn't the last person. In fact, he was the first in a series of scholars, and it continues today more rapidly than any time before in the postmodern age in which we live, that Israel is simply being erased from history. And uh, more and more, this is coming out in literature out there. This is a book that came out in 2006. Now, that's 14 years after Davies published his book. 2006, just three years ago, this book was published in English by Israel Finkelstein, an archaeologist at Tel Aviv University, and Neil Asher Silberman, from, uh, a journalist from uh, Connecticut. They wrote this book, uh, the second book, very popular book, by the way. This is not a scholarly book. Uh, addressed to scholars. This is a popular book that you will find in paperback all over the United States at Barnes and Nobles and other stores like it. Okay, so this is a very popular book. In fact, Finkelstein recently said to me that he can retire off the proceeds of this, uh, of this volume and the other volume that he published before that. They say in this book, no evidence, there was no evidence for extensive literacy or writing and the time of David and Solomon. So they're questioning, you know, whether the, the records were actually written down that far back then. In fact, they say the, all the stories of David and Solomon were written in the 7th century, 300 years later. No evidence for extensive wars, as the Bible describes. No evidence for major building. No evidence for dynastic intrigues between Saul and David. Jerusalem appears at this time to be a small village controlling a very sparse hinterland, a kind of overgrown cow town. That's how they used to describe Tucson when we lived down there. I understand Phoenix and Tucson have grown a lot more in the last 15 years. But anyway, a sparsely populated hinterland. Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, Israel at this time was not the kingdom that the Bible describes. Now, if you think this is only making circulation here in the United States, two weeks ago I was doing a camp meeting at Bogenhofen Seminary in Austria, and I wanted to find these to see if these books were published in German. So I went across the river just a few kilometers away to a little town called Simbach, right on the border in Germany, Bogenhofen's in Austria. And uh, there in the local bookstore in this little tiny town of a population of maybe, I don't know, 10,000 or so, there it was in paperback in German. Not only was it in paperback, but I noticed a sticker in the front of it that said the book of the month it was being promoted as the book of the month in bookstores all over the country last month, this book here, okay, published there in 2007. And then I went across the river back to Austria and went grocery shopping at the grocery store. You know, you have to do that when you're traveling overseas sometimes. And uh, there I found a brand new magazine. I left it for my cousin over there so he could have it. But a brand new magazine just came out in July. Der Spiegel, which is the equivalent of Time or Newsweek magazine, puts out several special editions. And they had a special edition on the history of Jerusalem. And in that magazine, a whole article over the controversy. And Finkelstein was quoted there as well. So this is making its waves all over the world all over the place, especially in the Western world in which we live. And the question that I have for you today is, why does it matter? Does it matter to us whether David or any of these people ever existed? Does it matter for us? If David is indeed such a central figure in Scripture, why does it matter? Without David, there is no founder of Jerusalem. 
Think about it. Who founded Jerusalem as the capital? Without David, there is no author for Israel's worship liturgy, at least most of it. Without David, there is no united monarchy in Israel in the 10th century BC. Without David, how can a Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation in the last chapter later claim to be of the root of David? In fact, without David, there is no hope for a Messiah, which means there's no hope for a first coming, which means for us as Adventists, there's no hope for a second coming. Do you see how crucial this is? And I believe that uh, powers that be are working very hard to undermine the authority of Scripture in the time in which we live. So it's important. It's important to have these uh, aspects of history. But what about the Bible? Do we need these archaeological evidences to show that the Bible is true? No, we don't. And I, as an archaeologist, don't go out into Israel on a regular basis in order to prove that these things happened. That's not my task. The Bible stands on its own as the Word of God. It has its own internal evidences. In fact, God is the God of history, and if He is the God of history, what does that mean? It means that we, as we read Scripture, are reading the ways in which He has carefully documented through inspired writers His work among men and women throughout history. The Bible itself is a testimony. It contains the evidence for God's work in this world for a period of thousands of years. That's what we have. If, if all the history that could be written of the ancient world would be here, and believe me, as a historian, many times I wish there would be more details here, it would fill libraries. The purpose of the writers of the Bible was to show God's acts in history. And for us as Christians, that is an extremely important aspect. Archaeology provides us the realia of those acts, but Christianity has been well and alive for 2,000 years, long before archaeology came into the scene. But I believe that archaeology in today's skeptical postmodern world is important. Why? Because we are reaching or trying to reach out to people on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, who have major questions about the Bible. They watch the History Channel, they watch the Discovery Channel, they watch all kinds of things, they hear all kinds of things, and their faith, even the faith of our own believers, are being challenged on a regular basis in the world that we live in today. And if we're not engaged in these kinds of battles, who else is going to be? We need to continue to be engaged in these things. So with that introduction, I'd like to move a step forward and go with you to one of the most, and if you brought your Bibles here with you, that's great, because we're going to open the Bible today. I hope that's okay with you. It is the Word of God for our time, and um, we're going to open our Bibles to one of the most famous stories that all of us, if we've grown up in, as Christians, if we've grown up in the Jewish faith, we have heard since we were knee-high the story of David and Goliath. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, Philistia is located here on the coastal plain. I just kind of drew a box there. That's not the exact borders. It's just kind of a, uh, 
uh, kind of idea, but it encapsulates the five major cities that were Philistia and mentioned as the Pentapolis cities in the Bible. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And then across from Philistia, right on the border to Philistia, is the territory of Judah. So these were neighbors. And the Philistines were under constant, well, the Israelites were under constant harassment and attack from the Philistines and vice versa. You know the stories uh, that are described there. This is the territory that we're talking about. And Jerusalem, of course, is located up high in the hill country. Philistia is down on the coastal plain, and you have this huge area in between. And the main road to Jerusalem read, led through a valley called the Valley of Elah up this direction here. Now, today, the modern interstate, or Highway 1, goes from Tel Aviv over this direction, a little bit further over here, and up this valley over here. But in ancient times, this was the main road leading from Philistia, from Egypt, up to Jerusalem, the main capital. And it was for that reason that many of these cities, like Lachish, and Azekah, and Sucho, and Beth Shemesh, and other cities further down are mentioned in the Bible as having been refortified again and again as border cities and fortresses that guarded the way up to the hill country to Jerusalem. Why? Because whenever the Egyptian king would come, he would have to go through that route in order to make it up to Jerusalem. Whenever the Babylonian king or the Assyrian king, Nebuchadnezzar or uh, Shalmaneser or Teglath-Pileser III or any of these individuals would have to come and attack Jerusalem, they would have to come up from the coastal plain up through the hill country. So this was a very important area in the ancient part of the world. And it's a wonderful, there's a wonderful description of it right here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's read it together. Uh, I'll start with verse 1. In fact, it is verse 1 here on the slide as well, verse 1 through 4. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sucho, which belongs to Judah, or in Judah. They pitched their camp in Ephes Damim. We don't know where Ephes Damim is. We don't even know exactly what that means. It may mean boundary of blood, which would be an appropriate place, because uh, appropriate name, because this is where a lot of battles took place. Um, between Sucho and Azekah. We know where those two places are. I'll show you in a minute. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Isn't that a wonderful geographical description? As historians, we love those kinds of descriptions because we can actually go there. And in fact, we can go today. We don't even have to go to Israel. You can get right on your computer and Google Earth it right down to the spot. You guys done that before? It's great. You can fly anywhere in the world. I've seen my, my in-laws home down in Brazil, and, and uh, you know, I, can, I even have gone to Berrien Springs recently, <laughs> and I noticed that the picture, I don't know if they've changed it since then, but the picture was taken on Sabbath. You know how you know? Pioneer Memorial Church parking lot is completely full, and all the other university parking lots are empty. <laughs> Good sign, right? They didn't tell me the date, but I could tell you right now it was on Sabbath. So here we are. We're at the Ela Valley. And uh, isn't that a beautiful valley? It's lush. It's an agricultural area. Here's the valley right here. This is an aerial shot. Sucho is located here. Azekah is over here, actually. And this is the valley with the Philistines on one side 
right near the gas station, by the way, which is right here, and uh, Israel on the other. Here's a Google map area. This is great. Azekah is right here. Sucho is here. How do we know these two sites? Azekah was excavated in the 1900, uh, I should say 1800s, late 1800s. Um, by Bliss and McAllister, and Sucho has not been excavated, but surveys there have found actual stamped jar handles that say Sucho on them. So we can have a fairly good idea that this was the location. And the biblical description fits this very nicely. So if we go back to the biblical description, what does it tell us? The Philistine camped on one hill between Azekah and Sucho, that's what we just read, and the Israelites on the opposite hill with the valley between them. Does that make sense? Okay, it makes sense. And when you're over there, it's really exciting to see this. And tour buses, by the way, stop by droves right here. And they hike down to this little spot. There's some cliffs right over here, and there's a bunch of nice flat stones that are disappearing very fast with all the tourists that come. Because <laughs> it's around here that David, you know, picked up his, uh, his stones. Oh man, I forgot the stone I was supposed to bring today. It's in my hotel room at the Hyatt. I'm sorry. Anyway, I brought one even for you to see and now I can't show it to you. Anyway, so here's Dave and Goliath. You'll wait, huh? You'll wait. Okay. Anyway, here we are and uh, David and Goliath. What do we do with this story? It's an amazing story, isn't it? It's one of my favorites in the Bible. Here you have Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, being brought forward, terrorizing the Israelites day after day. David is sent down by his father Jesse to bring some food to his brothers, and he arrives there and hears the taunts of this guy. How have you imagined Goliath in the past? Well, tall, for one thing, burly. Tough, muscular, yeah. I always imagined him kind of as a brute, you know, kind of as a hairy brute, uncivilized, just a powerhouse guy, you know, who could just take on anybody. The Philistines, however, you have to understand, were the most sophisticated people in the region at that time in terms of culture and in terms of technology. The Bible itself says they controlled iron technology. And only Jonathan and Saul fighting with... Uh, AK-47s, and um, the Philistines had Apache helicopters that they were sending in. So anyway, here you, have, here you have the situation. David and Goliath. Let's look at the story a little bit with, together with us. It's in chapter 17 here, and I'm just going to read, and we're not going to read the whole chapter. You're welcome to do that later on your own, but listen to what Goliath says here. Um, before that, I want to I just uh, focus a little bit on, on, on Goliath, uh, David. Uh, verse 38, so Saul, after David decided to take this guy on, Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head and also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Do you know what the spirit of prophecy says about this? She says very pointedly that David did not want any of the credit of the outcome of this battle to go to Saul's armor and to Saul's sword because he was going 
under the directorship of God, and all credit was to go to God. It's very interesting that you have that uh, here. And so David goes forward in battle. The Philistine is taunting him. Listen to this in verse uh, 42. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by the gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Do we still believe today that there is a God in Israel? Do we believe he is the same God that is able in today's powerful forces that surround us to still work the same as he did back then? Amen. He's able to do those, still, those things still today. And David goes forward in courage and in faith, taking up those five stones and uh, advances towards him. It's an amazing story as we look at it in 2 Samuel. But I want to move forward a little bit with you and, and share with you some exciting things that have just happened in the last few uh, months in regards to this story. Because you see in yellow here a new site in this valley that until about a year and a half ago was not even known to exist or have importance to this particular story in history. It's called Kirbet Kayafa in Arabic. And I will share with you at the end of this presentation what we might think it is today. Now, you have to understand that there is this gray zone between the territory of Israel and Judah, I sorry, Judah and Philistia that we just talked about. There's Gath and Ekron, the two Philistine sites. And then we have Sucho, Azekah, and Beth Shemesh, three sites that are recorded in the Bible as belonging to Judah. In fact, you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, you remember that story? It was captured, it made its way around several of the different sites. The Philistines finally got tired of it after half their people died, after their god Dagon fell down twice in the temple. They finally sent it by ox cart off, you remember that story? And where did it go? It ended up going straight to Bet Shemesh, and there is Bet Shemesh right there. In fact, the modern city that you see next to it has the same name today. There's a wonderful McDonald's there. If you eat at McDonald's, I don't. And uh, there's an office depot and a bunch of other, and it ace hardware too, believe it or not. Um, but that's Bet Shemesh. Bet Shemesh, by the way, has been excavated for the last 18 seasons. I was there again this summer and met with the excavators, Shlomo Bunimovich and Svi Lederman and a wonderful huge destruction layer that they found there with huge whole pots and everything. It was just amazing to see this summer. But you know what uh, Svi Lederman told me several years ago when I visited the site, he gave me a two-hour tour. He said, after all these seasons of excavation at Bet Shemesh, do you know what, he said? We have not found one single pig bone in 18 seasons. Interesting. There's sheep and goat. They weren't quite vegetarians back then. But no pig bones. 
I excavated at Ekron for several years. I also excavated with Harvard at Ashkelon, another Philistine site on the coast, and 35 to 40% of the bones found there are pig bones, okay? And that's true for all the Philistine sites as well. But not at Bet Shemesh, and guess what? Not at Azeka, and guess what? At Kirbet Kayafa, as we'll see, not there either. So there's a kind of invisible ethnic boundary that's there between these two territories. And you can tell archeologically, scientifically, through the faunal analysis of the bones that we dig up at these sites. Kind of exciting, isn't it? So yeah, we need all kinds of experts when we do archeology, span including zooarchaeologists who can analyze the bones. I don't know the difference. I grew up a vegetarian. I don't know the difference between a pig bone and a, and a sheep bone, or I think I probably could recognize a bird bone, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> so here's this amazing site of Kirbet Kayapa. This is what it looks like today. And we knew it was there because you can see, still see the walls surrounding the site. It's great. It's a fortified city, but it was always thought to be late. That is dating to the time of Alexander the Great, the Hellenistic period. And so many of the biblical archaeologists weren't interested in it because it was not belonging to the period, earlier period. But in 2007, it was explored again by Yossi Garfinkel of the Hebrew University with one of his students, Sarga Noor, and they discovered there that there is an earlier wall underneath the later wall that is enormous in proportions with stones that are larger than any other Judean site known up to this point in time here at Kirbet Kayafa. And so they decided to do a probe excavation last year in 2008, and they worked at the site. Here you can see where they opened up along the wall line some uh, new areas, and the, it's amazing what you can do in one season. They found the city gate in the first season they were excavating. And uh, here is the outline of the gate from up above. This is an architectural drawing looking from above. Here's the threshold of the gate. Here are three piers, sets of piers, that each could have supported doors, if you will. There's the drain that goes out here. Uh, they had a drainage system back then, a sewer system, you know, that took stuff out. And uh, here are chambers inside the gate area. This is a four-chambered gate. It's a huge structure. And then along the gate, here you can see where it was a double wall. Here's the double wall with rooms in it. There's a doorway going into the room. Here's another doorway. These rooms that uh, we call this a casemate wall that surrounds the entire place. We estimate today that the city was surrounded by a double wall that weighed in excess of stone 200,000 ton, tons. 200,000 tons. That's a huge undertaking uh, at this particular area. Here you can see this particular building here, and uh, some amazing discoveries were made in 2008 at this particular site. Now I have to tell you something in advance. In 2008, 2007 actually, I was in San Diego for professional meetings and Yossi Garfinkel approached me and invited Southern Adventist University to be a full partner in this project. And at the time, we were involved in uh, negotiations for another site in Israel, and I didn't jump on it because we were in the middle of that. And uh, <clears throat> in 2000, and uh, that happened in 2007. So in 2008, they had this amazing season. Our negotiations uh, uh, for the other site did not work out, 
and uh, we have uh, since gone back. I'll share with you more about that in a moment. In 2008, however, here's how tall the ancient Israelite walls stood. Now, how do we know that the earlier walls do not date to the Hellenistic period of Alexander, but date earlier? Based on the pottery that was found there, along the floors associated with those walls, it's only a two or three period site. There are not all kinds of extensive cities built on top of the other, like other sites that we have. And look at the preservation. The stones are completely different as well. They're much larger than the later wall that dates to the Hellenistic or Roman period. The complete jars were found. We have 30 restorable vessels that were found just in the first season of excavation um, in 2008 in these rooms, in two rooms of the city. So in two rooms of the city, there was a massive destruction, 30 restorable vessels. And we know that these vessels, look at some of these, they're gorgeous, beautifully painted. They all date to the 10th century BC, right to the time period of David. We can tell this because of pottery typology in comparison with other surrounding sites and some of the stuff that they have, but we can also uh, base this on other grounds as well. Yossi Garfinkel held a conference right after the first season, and he brought 40 of the top archaeologists in Israel together, showed him the pottery, it was a very open dialogue, and said, what do you think? He brought the critics as well, by the way, those who uh, have been you know, somewhat skeptical about the time of David, and they all said, there's no question, this is the first really clear early 10th century pottery, right from the beginning, about 1,000 to 1,000 and, uh, or 900 and, and uh, 50 BC that we have. Very important discovery. Right in the Valley of Elah where David and Goliath fought. That's precisely the time when David ruled as king over the territory. Here's a beautiful goblet. How would you like to drink out of that at ASI supper this evening? I didn't bring it with me, so you won't have the chance. But anyway, uh, this was one of the things that were found. It's been mended here on the side and a little bit on top as well, but beautiful restorable vessel. But the most shocking discovery that was made in 2008 in the first season, six-week season, was as a couple of volunteers were washing the pottery, 27,000 pottery sherds, broken pieces of pottery were found that first season, and all of those need to be washed by the people that come there. So if you think you get out of dishwashing for six weeks when you come on a dig, you, dig, you, you don't. You have to wash the ancient dishes. And uh, here they are scrubbing away, and one of the people that were scrubbing soon recognized, luckily didn't scrub too hard and too long, because she would have scrubbed it right off, recognized a letter on one of the broken pieces. Here it is. She recognized the letter A. Do you see it there? The letter A. And that's precisely what it is, only it's an ancient A. It's the letter Aleph in Hebrew. Did you know that our letter A comes from an Egyptian sign? There you see it. The way we write it in capital letters, it comes from an ox head. The two parts of the A that come down should have been originally pointing up. They're the two horns of the ox. And the bottom part is the head of the ox. That's where our A comes from. So next time you write an A, you think about that. Okay? The, 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 the R, Rosh in Hebrew means head. The R is simply, you know, that last part of the R that we write is the beard of a man. The rounded part is the head. And the other stroke is the neck. 
You can imagine a capital R, that's where it came from, from an Egyptian hieroglyphic many, many years earlier. And guess where Moses came from? From Egypt, right? Find it very interesting. But here is a text, eight lines on a pottery sherd, the oldest Hebrew inscription ever found in history. 800 years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. It, date, it came from the floor of these houses from the time of David. Now that is significant. What does it say? It will be announced at the professional meetings in New Orleans, the American Schools of Oriental Research meetings in November, the official translation of this. And uh, I'm going to be chairing the session where that will be, you know, the media will be there, uh, we'll be chairing the session where this is going to be presented for the first time. We do know that three of the words are king, judge, and land. And the big question is, which king, which land, which judge? What's going on here? So uh, we'll see when we get to that point uh, next time. But. All the conservators have worked on this. It was brought to Boston to our professional meetings last year. It was taken to some of the top imaging labs in the country, both in Boston and in Los Angeles. Uh, before that was done, Yossi Garfinkel, who is here, the director of the site, showed it to the leading epigrapher who specializes in ancient languages in the world, Frank Moorcross of Harvard University. That's Frank Moorcross there. He is 88 years old and his, failing, his health is failing quickly. But according to Larry Steger, his, his colleague at Harvard, Professor Cross could not sleep for two nights after looking over this ostracon and reading what he read. Okay, so that's just an amazing, amazing thing. So we're all waiting in anticipation of what it says. It was taken to Headwall Photonics for specialized photography so that some of the faded letters uh, could be um, exposed a little bit better. It was taken to Megavision in Santa Barbara and also to Cedar sinai Hospital in LA with all kinds of different technologies that were given to it. And uh, here is a photograph that I'm really not supposed to show you yet, but uh, there it is anyway, I'll go fast through it. <laughs> Yossi Garfinkel here is, um, is excavating something important and we found several more this summer in our field. He was excavating a small little seed there, an olive pit. There were several of them sent to Oxford University to the uh, radiocarbon labs there, and there it is. And the carbon dates all came back to the same time that the pottery dates to as well. So there's a confirmation for some of the dating. I'm not a, a, a huge, um, there's, a, there's issues with carbon dating. It's not always working properly, but uh, at least the data from this shows positively. And so we'll just have to see what further tests will show in future, uh, future uh, seasons and so forth. So here we have a site that is located in the boundary area between Judah and Philistia, right in the, right overlooking the Valley of Elah, which is so important as that highway up to the territory. We have a city that is a fortress city that is built of 200,000 tons of stone just for the walls and the houses in the periphery. We haven't excavated yet in the center of the site. There's not as much to excavate there. 200,000 tons of stone. The implications are, friends, that if this is a Judean site, and we have no reason to believe it isn't, it's within the territory, that we have here a city that wasn't built by a farmer who wanted a 
small fort. This required organization, this required central organization and planning to build something of this massive proportion. It is not near Jerusalem, which supposedly was a tiny little cow town controlling a little hinterland. It is on the periphery of Judah, right at the border to Philistia, which makes sense because this was an area of contention. So what is a major planned place like this doing on the border if Finkelstein and others are correct in their conclusions in 2006 about Judah and about David? We have now the oldest Hebrew inscription ever found at this site. Again, not at the center in Jerusalem, but found in the periphery right at the border of Philistia. What does that say about literacy at the time of David? You see how important this is? The media went into a frenzy when this was first announced on October 29 in a New York Times article. I was with Mark Finley at Discoveries 08 that weekend and was presenting with him on archaeology that weekend for the satellite series. And on October 30, which was the evening that I was there, um, CNN had it as the second top story online. Okay, and it, after that it went all over the world, of course, and we have all kinds of headlines. Archaeologists report finding oldest Hebrew text, new evidence surfaces of David's kingdom, a closer look at the ancient fine print. One newspaper in London went a little bit too far and said that finally evidence had been found for Goliath. Well, that's not really true, but uh, anyway, you know how the media can get sometimes. But there was huge media uh, attention to this from the Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, ABC News, all the way across. And this summer, just a couple of weeks ago, Southern Adventist University was working at this site, um, opening our own field here, Field D, uh, which we have publication rights for and which we will be working in close conjunction with the Hebrew University at this new exciting site here. And I am very pleased to share with you a little bit about that season. Would you like to hear a little bit about it? We were just there with, for three weeks, a short time, not the full six weeks, because we wanted to train and test out some new equipment with just staff this summer. We didn't take with us a whole group of volunteers and everything. We were, there were 20 of us, a small team. Here's uh, some of them who didn't leave too early. A small team of specialized archaeology students and graduates who have experience in the field. Um, we brought along Southern Adventist University's uh, professor of computing, Scott Anderson, and his wife, Patty, who's a st statistician, a mathematician. We brought along um, a professional surveyor and, uh, anyway, some, some uh, team members to help us with this. We even brought along our president, Dr. Beats, and put him to work out at the site. And here he is in one of the bucket chains uh, moving things along. Uh, we tested out some brand new equipment, which has been, was just absolutely fabulous to use. We had an anonymous donor, very generous donor, give us uh, funding for uh, GPS and total station equipment that allows us to precisely pinpoint and survey things to within a couple of millimeters. And that is, it was just an incredible blessing because what this allows us to do in the field digitally every single day is to come up with a plan every single day for what we're excavating. Every single day our team produces one of these, you know, and, 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 and charts that as time goes along. There's only two other sites in Israel that are, that's using this kind of technology. One is Harvard University and one is uh, Tel Aviv University, Bet Shemesh, 
And so we're right on the cutting edge with developing this. And we want to go a step beyond this. And what we're actually doing with the data that we got this summer, and this is a lot of post-processing that is taking place uh, in the next couple of months, and I hope to present this at our professional meetings in New Orleans, but we're wanting to basically go through layer by layer and digitally show, as we peel back the layers, digitally reconstruct that uh, in a way that artifacts can be placed in their original setting with digital photography and, uh, and, and do that. And it's, it's very exciting to see what the future holds. I wish I could show you that here now, but we've only been back from the si season uh, for a few weeks, and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done by our team uh, working on this. So we've got students from the computing department at Southern working on this, as well as um, other professionals that are helping us with some of this data. The walls that you can see here in the area that we excavated, we excavated the casemate wall that continued south of the gate, the gate that was found in 2006, uh, eight, I'm sorry, and uh, we excavated down to the floors of those. Now in 2008, the casemate walls that were excavated, those are the rooms inside the walls, were empty and devoid of pottery. All the pottery that was found was in the areas inside, and so, the breakthrough this summer was that in our area, at least, we had complete restorable vessels inside the casemate walls themselves. Uh, Justo Morales, who's the museum coordinator at Southern Adventist University, was with us this summer. And uh, here he holds part of a chalice, like the one you just saw a moment ago, one of those cups that he just picked up off the floor uh, of the entryway or the doorway into that uh, his part uh, that he was excavating there into one of the casemate rooms. And we found complete restorable huge storage jars about this tall. Here are some of the handles. Notice the thumbprints that you have in there. And of course, always the question is, whose thumbprint is it? Um, you know, we all have individual thumbprints. As le at least I've had to have mine taken when I go through security in Atlanta and, and travel internationally. So, here we, have, here we have thumbprints, and so that makes us wonder. We found literally dozens of these jar handles, and we found in our area this summer, just three weeks of digging, we found two restorable vessels that were these thumbprint jars that are very typical from the time of David, from the early part um, of his, of his uh, history. Here are some of the restorable vessels that have been found, and what is very exciting is we're, we were working in this area over here, uh, in this area over here, another team was excavating a second gate. Now this brings us to the question of what site is this? By the way, how long do I have? Till 12? Okay, good. I'll move right along. The second gate, here you can see the large, huge, you can see the difference in the size of stones between this stone and the stones up above. That's the later rebuilding of the Hellenistic wall. And here you have the earlier huge stones of the Israelite and here you have the dimensions in the opening between the gate area. This was later filled in by, by uh, Alexander's people in the uh, 4th century BC. And then you've got this opening that's identical to the first gate that was found on the other side. But why two gates? Up to this point in Judah, no other site besides Jerusalem, and we only know that from later periods, no other site has more than one gate. Lachish, the second most important city in Judah, has one gate. Uh, Bet Shemesh, one gate. All the other, Gezer, one gate. Why two gates? 
uh, strategically, militarily, it's certainly not to the advantage of this particular site to have two gates because the gate, of course, is the weakest part of the defense system and the, the, the part that always was attacked first. So why two gates? What could two gates hint to us about the identification of the site? Well, let's go to 1 Samuel 17, 52, which is the end of the story of David and Goliath, and look at that quickly. It says there, I'll just read it off the screen, when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Remember that part of the story? Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'ariam road to Gath and Ekron. Okay, so to go back, here we have the Valley of Elah. Here we have Gath and Ekron. Here they're traveling along the valley. They didn't go this way because there's mountains right here. They went around the valley here, around Azekah undoubtedly, and then fled to the gate of Ekron and to the gate of Gath. Okay? But where did they go? Along the Sha'arayim Road. That word is only used, Sha'arayim is only found three times, and in all three times it's found in the context of David in the setting of this territory of the Valley of Elah. Sha'arayim, what does it mean in Hebrew? Sha'ar means gate or door. And ayim is a plural ending, like our S at the end of a word, right? But it's more than simply a plural ending. It is a dual ending. In Hebrew, you have two plural endings. You have im, which is like S, okay? Im, Philistim means Philistines, okay? And then you have Yerushalayim. The ayim at the end is a dual ending. So here we have two indicated two. Two what? Two Sha'ar, gates. So the name of the place is Two Gates. Why would it have that kind of name? Because perhaps it was very unique, and certainly it is in the history of archaeology in that region. We don't have another city in Judah with two gates. Perhaps Kirbet Kayafa is in fact Sha'arayim, as mentioned in this context here in the Bible. Wouldn't that be interesting if we have just found a new biblical city and are excavating it for the first time in history. The gate, by the way, faces Jerusalem or the road to Jerusalem. The other gate faces towards Philistia. So again, interesting to... And this summer, this second gate was excavated and sure enough, while part of the piers were, were um, destroyed and robbed out by the later Hellenistic rebuilding, we have some of the piers very nicely uh, preserved just as we have them in the other area as well. So here we have a site in a very crucial part of Judah, the heartland of the Bible, tied to a very crucial period of Judah's early history, and particularly to a story that is well known to any Jew and any Christian around the world. And it is a wonderful privilege to be involved in excavations there. Who knows why we have been involved as an Adventist institution at such a time as this in one of the biggest controversial topics in biblical archaeology and biblical studies today, the history of David and uh, his monarchy. And so uh, it's exciting to be involved in something like that. It's exciting for our students and for our staff 
and uh, for us as an institution to have that kind of impact there with the Hebrew University, and we hope to continue that relationship in the future. In fact, our hopes are in the future to move perhaps from the site of Shaarayim across the valley to another site uh, down the road, so we'll have to see how that goes. But the battle of David and Goliath is a big battle. It's a battle in proportion for the early history of Israel, but certainly that battle continues to rage today. David realized that he was not battling a giant. He realized with Paul in Ephesians, if you don't mind turning there with me real quick, in Ephesians, chapter 6, he realized, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The challenges that we face today in the Western world are great challenges. The attack that we find coming in the popular front and in scholarly fronts from every angle to the Bible is serious. From creation to the patriarchs to David to the very history of these events that take place. And it's core to what we're doing. If we are called to be evangelists, and what have we been called to do? To take that everlasting gospel of the first angel's message and the second angel's message and the third angel's message. Ellen White calls those the everlasting gospel, the three angels' messages. If we're to take that to the world, but the world has major doubts about the Bible, how are we going to make that bridge, cross that bridge to them? So there's some very serious issues with that as we look at the world around us. You know, I just came from, um, from Europe on Tuesday, as I said. Here's a, a territory, I'm speaking now of the Western world. Here's a territory where Christianity began. Here's an area where we have the wars of Christianity played out. Um, the Wattbuch Castle, where Luther translated the New Testament for the first time. I was there last week, and I was standing in the room where Luther did that for the German people and opened the word of God to them for the first time. Prague, what an incredible city, where Huss and Jerome preached the gospel and preached the Bible in the local Bohemian language from the Bethlehem Chapel and finally gave their lives for that. My 10-year-old daughter, as we were walking over the Charles Bridge one day, she said to me, Daddy, if all these things happened here so many years ago, and they were trying to grapple my 8- and 10-year-old with, you know, when this was in relationship to where they were, where are all the Protestants today? Wow. From a 10-year-old, where are all the Protestants today? My wife spent six weeks studying German at Bogenhofen Seminary this summer in Austria. Austria has 3,500 Adventists. I attend a church in Collegedale, Tennessee that has almost that many members. This is the Western world. And even in this country, where we sent out missionaries early on to Europe, 
We sent Jan Andrews out to be the first missionary to that part of the world. Even in this country, we are facing huge challenges. Most of our demographic, some of our demographic groups are growing, but in other areas, they're not. What are we going to do to reach out to the, the, this generation and this time when they're grappling with all of these questions and all of these things? It's not easy. It's not an easy task. So I think one of the things that we have to do, and I'm speaking here to the choir because you guys are doing it, ASI is doing it, is coming up with different ways and different methods of reaching people around the world. Different avenues to do that. Archaeology is one of those. In Chattanooga, Tennessee in 2006, Mark Finley came to do a huge Revelation of, and Hope series, Revelation of Hope series, and uh, he had experimented a year earlier in Denver with a series of archaeology meetings, and he called me up and he says, Michael, I'd like to do this with a real archaeologist. I did it in Denver and it was very successful, but it would be more successful if we had a trained archaeologist on board as well. So, um, so we did. We opened it up in an Adventist church. We just sent, I think, about 20,000 of these flyers out into the community. And the first night, Friday evening, we had 750 people come out. Now, I know that that is an Adventist community, Collegedale is. And, you know, from our records and our registrations, we saw that about half of those were Adventists. But half of them were not. On Saturday night, the second night, we couldn't, we had to call the police in to, 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 to uh, delegate traffic because over 800 people came. And uh, it was amazing to see the, the response to this particular topic of archaeology. And what was even more amazing, and I, I have to go, I don't have much time left. What was even more amazing was that of the 400 or so non-Adventists that attended, and these were pre-meetings to the main Revelation of Hope meetings that were in the downtown convention center in Chattanooga, where, by the way, the net meetings all started in 1995. You remember that? The crossover into those main meetings was almost 90% Praise from those 400 members, okay? So there's, some, there's a dynamic that, that is happening here that, that was very good. So with that, we, we decided the following year to go to the University of Southern Maine in Portland, Maine, where Teeny is originally from, and we decided to try out the same thing. This time we didn't do it in an Adventist church. In Chattanooga, it was in an Adventist church. The, uh, the archaeology meetings were. This time we decided to rent a brand new multi-million dollar facility at the University of Southern Maine. Now, Maine is a different demographic completely. Um, Portland is a small uh, city. It's not as large, I think, even as Chattanooga. And uh, we did not have the same kind of turnout, certainly as not the Advent, but we had about between three and 400 people that would come out on a nightly basis to these meetings. And uh, I still remember right here, they're sitting, four of them. They were there two hours before the first meeting began. Some ladies sitting right in the front. And they watched us wrestle with our computer. There were $500,000 worth of technology equipment in this new hall, and there was a bad VGA cable to the computer. So they thought it was our computers. We finally got it to work. But they came faithfully every single night we had these meetings. Sorry, I need to be over here for the light. Um, they came every single night. Turned out one of them is a Catholic chaplain at the local Catholic hospital. Um, dear ladies, and one night they came to Teeny and they said, you know what? These meetings have been wonderful. We're so excited that we're here. But we have been meeting as a Bible study group, our, our, uh, the four of us. We've been meeting on a regular basis for months now. And we've been praying for months that God 
would somehow direct us in a way that we can study the book of Revelation more deeply. We have been praying about this, and, and these meetings have been wonderful, but do you have any idea how we could find that? <laughs> and Tini pulled out, you know, one of the brochures for the follow-up meetings we were having, the, you know, in a couple weeks. She says, well, actually, we're going to be hosting a whole series right here in this very same place for the next five weeks. And they just were blown away. They couldn't believe it. God had answered their prayers, and they came faithfully throughout that time and attended those meetings. The guy operating the sound booth in the back, by the way, at the University of Southern Maine, he was a student there, was a former Seventh-day Adventist. And it was worth it just for that to be there and to have the meetings in that place. Discoveries 08, many of you watched it on television. The whole, the whole series, especially the beginning part, was revolving around archaeology. Did you notice that? You notice how Mark is dressed here? In a leather jacket. Is that reminiscent of anybody or anything? Okay, so, so the idea here was to kind of emphasize archaeology, and I came down just for a weekend. I was teaching full-time and couldn't be down more than that to work and, and, and show some artifacts live there as we uh, did that and, and then continue that. So, so this is an avenue that seems to work very, very well. And uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, I was there. Some of you know Bill McClendon. He has built up in the last 15 years, I think it's the, probably the fastest growing church in North America. He went from a small group to 700 members in just a short period. I don't think it's 15 years, I think it's less than that, in a short period of time. And he invited me to come out and do a series and it was a delight to be with him there. I just got a letter um, two weeks ago from one of the attendees in February of that meeting saying that uh, she was a through and through skeptic she said, but those meetings helped her make a decision, and she's now a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Boise, Idaho, we're going to be there with Natty at the end of this month uh, doing a series that's involving, I think, six or seven different churches there with Dr. Ron Cluzet. Got to go back to the beginning, you know, to the heart of things. So I'll be at Battle Creek Tabernacle in Michigan in, in uh, September as a prelude to an evangelistic series there. And then we're going to go overseas and try it in secular... Europe, for an entire week in Lisbon, Portugal, this coming October, we want to try it out there and see how it works in that particular setting. So it is exciting to see what God is doing and what he continues to do. One of the things that we're also trying to do, of course, is to uh, produce materials that can be used by church members and lay people as well. This is a series of 10 programs that we just put out uh, in 2007. Uh, which basically is the series that we do live, but uh, for television, and it's been shown on the Hope Channel, and it is available here as well. So these are all avenues. Oh, thank you, Dr. Beats. I appreciate that. Yeah, here are, some, here are some of these, and you can stop by if you don't have a set or if you'd like a set at our booth later on as we pull out new materials and new things. But God, the point is this, God has all given us means to reach people. I am not a professional evangelist. I'm a scientist and an archaeologist. But this can work in my field, I have found. And why am I doing five meetings this year when I should be writing books and articles, which I do as well, because I believe in evangelism. There's a lot of pastors in our North American division today that don't believe in public evangelism anymore, and members that don't either. There's a lot of people in Europe that don't believe it works anymore, but I think it can as we explore new avenues and new ways in which to make that happen. 
And so I thank ASI for the work that they're doing in, in making uh, uh, new plans and cutting edge uh, uh, new developments with, uh, with various programs and things. And this is one way in which I hope that in the future we can also uh, continue to reach out to the secular mind. If you want to visit our booth, we can do so. But before we end, I simply want to, it's Southern Adventist University, and I don't know the number. I was there shortly yesterday. And um, 300, thank you. Oh, not 403, 300. Is it 403? Well, I, I, 300, somebody just said. So if it's 300, that's a correction. Okay, I don't know if it's 403, it's 300. I want to end with a text from Scripture. It's found in Revelation, the last chapter, the last few verses. This is what Jesus says in verse 12 of the last chapter of the Bible. And the word is for you and for you and I as well. Jesus says, and behold, I am coming quickly. Nobody who looks at the events around the world today can doubt that Jesus is coming very soon. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then in verse 16 he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David the bright and morning star. I'm looking forward to seeing that bright and morning star again soon. Amen. But I believe that he still has a great deal for us to do before then. And I challenge each one of us to pray for each other as we continue to reach out to those around us and share with them this everlasting gospel that he's given to us. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you work in your church today. We have been called to a time and place in Earth's history that is challenging. There's no question about it. It is probably the, going to be the most challenging period of Earth's history that any church has ever faced. Thank you for preparing us. Thank you for giving us your instruction and your word and for the hope and courage that you provide to us. Thank you that you are coming quickly, and we ask more than anything else that your Holy Spirit would infuse each of us, that when we read your word, that we would be convicted of what it says, and that it wouldn't end in our homes or in our places of work, but that it would go out, and that we would have, we would have the courage to share and to proclaim that which you have called this church at this time to share and proclaim to the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.